You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season eight, episode 15, the season finale. Shara Nova is a classically trained vocalist and self-taught multi-instrumentalist. She records dazzling, shape-shifting music under the moniker My Brightest Diamond. Her music resists the conventions of genre, blending elements of rock, art pop, and chamber music into a sound totally her own. Over the span of her career, Shara has released multiple groundbreaking albums as well as composed a Baroque chamber opera titled You, Us, We All. She has recorded as a guest vocalist with notable artists such as David Byrne, The Decemberist, Sufjan Stevens, and many others. Her extensive collaborations with visual artists include contributions to the works of Matthew Ritchie, Matthew Barney, and more recently, performance artist and vocalist Helga Davis on a collaborative film project titled Ocean Body. In today's episode, I talk with Shira about her background as an artist and some of the motivations that inform her work. If you're a patron of the podcast, you can enjoy an additional episode segment with Shara on her experience as a working artist navigating our current cultural landscape. Visit patreon.com slash makersandmystics or see the show notes of this episode and sign up to become a patron today. Thank you for listening. This is my conversation with Shara Nova of My Brightest Diamond. Shara, thank you so much for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. Thank you, Stephen. I've been listening to your music all the way back to the days of Bring Me the Workhorse. (laughs) And so this is a real treat to be able to sit down with you and talk with you about your background as an artist, your creative process, and hopefully to learn more about what inspires you and what motivates your work. Happy to be here. I'd like to start with some background on you and and your upbringing. I read on your website that you grew up in a family of traveling evangelical ministers and that you spent much of your childhood crisscrossing back and forth across the country. I'm really curious to know how this environment may have informed your experiences of music and art. It was a strange way to grow up, a unique way to grow up. My grandfather was an evangelical Assemblies of God revival holder. So he and the family would travel around the country holding week-long revivals, and that's the way my dad grew up. And all the kids played. Uh, My grandfather was a guitar player, and they made a little record in Nashville. So I grew up seeing my grandfather play every week, and my father played accordion, my mother played piano and organ. And being in music as a profession was normal life. And caring for people was also normal life. You know, the the idea of, of being aware of the outsider. As a pastor's daughter, my job was to keep an eye out for the newcomers, Shara, and make sure you make them feel welcome. (laughs) So I always had my eye on the outside, and I always also felt that I was on the outside because it was a certain kind of pressure and a certain um, 
restrictive, in, in some ways it was a very restrictive way of growing up ideologically. And so music was an escape for me. It was a discovery. It was an adventure. It was the possibility of asking questions. And it was freedom. But the fact that we moved around my whole life to, to you know, from east to west coast, north to south, um, we were Southerners by, by uh, genealogy, I guess, but I have a different kind of sense of home and of belonging than I think a lot of people. So when it comes to things like genre and stuff like that, that's like, it's like, well, that's a difficult question to answer. Speaking of genre, your biography on the website uses phrases like resistant to conventions of genre and also mentioned this sense of an outsider perspective. Fiercely independent was one of the other phrases that stuck out to me, as well as the desire for connectedness. And I loved what you said, how music was an escape for you, but it was also tied into caring for people. Would, would you say that those tensions still find expression in your art today? Definitely. I think most of my work is actually site-specific. So whether it's a piece of classical music or my Brightest Diamond album, I have to have a sense of where is this music going to take place and who is performing it. Mm -hmm. And I can really think of, once I started kind of framing my work in that way, I can understand it better. It's, it's music for place and for people. Because I was like, I have written all of this classical choral music. Why don't I have recordings of it? And then when I look at the pattern, it's because it was, it's written so specifically for a group of people through conversation. And it is for a moment in time. And then there is not documentation of a lot of that music. So as a composer... I'm not making work that you buy. I mean, you know, I have sheet music. If you would like to purchase them online, you may. <laughs> but <laughs> if you want to do some of my choral music, great. But most of the time, it is written for a specific moment. And I think writing that way allows me to feel connected to the people that are playing it. And I hope what it's doing in that moment for people is that they feel the specialness of that moment, this is for you right now. Mm -hmm. And I want that kind of intimacy in performance. How would you say that your training as a classical vocalist informs or influences your songwriting? Because they seem to be two different worlds coming together in a similar space. And I'd love to know how you feel like your classical training influences your songwriting. Again, I grew up in a very odd, wonderfully musical family. And so my parents were both practicing uh, classical music, but then were listening. My dad is, is a stereophile. He's like really into stereos. And so he would be listening to whatever the latest album was that was surround sound you know he's the guy that had no money but made sure that his sound system at home was 
top, you know, the most that he could afford. Mm-hmm. And that led him into some some kind of strange experimental music listening. My uncle is a classical pianist who also is an incredible ragtime player and an, an incredible arranger. So I grew up in a house that was listening to a lot of classical music, jazz, and my father would bring home Michael Jackson Thriller from the library because, you know, so there wasn't a kind of judgment on music. It was if it's good, if you like it, you know. Mm -hmm. I didn't answer your question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, would you like to? (laughs) Well, I think it is a lifelong journey of... You know, I was the kid who was singing at the Fort Worth Opera Chorus, my first professional job as a singer, and skating the parking ramps with the guys that were the guards, you know, in the opera. (laughs) And then the opera director is like screaming at me because I'm skating because I'm like okay sweet I think my part is coming up in like 10 minutes I better go inside and get my skates off and you know it's like the worst (laughs) threat was that they were going to take my skates away (laughs) I've always been that kid you know Mm -hmm. um the detail and the the kind of discipline that's required to play an instrument well and the kind of expressivity and the kinds of things that you can think about and investigate. You know, Pierre Boulez is doing deeper surround sound than anybody is still doing to this day, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. So I love music and, you know, I could respond as much to a Debussy chanson and then go to a punk Course of Empire show and need to thrash in the pit, you know? Yes. I, I think it's about what kind of emotion do I have and what do I need to, what am I trying to process through in music? And mm-hmm. having that pendulum swing has been really a lifeline for me. This is my hand, this is my wrist, this is my arm, this is my fist. Like a twisted vine wraps around entwining. Creativity for me has always been a bridging of polarities, in a sense. And I, I love drawing these connections between opera and maybe a skate park or punk and more classical expressions of music. And I know that even in some of your recent work, it feels like bridging things together is a real important part of what you're doing. And I know you've done some collaborations that I want to get into in a little bit, but I'd love to ask you now, when you mentioned place and context and venue, it reminds me of something that David Byrne said in his book, How Music Works, and where he talked about the different influences that a big stadium had on his music as opposed to playing at CBGBs or a little, a small dive of a place. And with you talking about even your upbringing of all the different contexts that perhaps you experienced music and art in, how would you say that context plays a part in the music and the art that you're making today? 
certainly space has everything to do with it because sound behaves so differently outside than it does in a concert hall. And certain songs are going to work for one space that simply don't for another. And there's a big learning curve with that, even like, anyway, period. There's a big learning curve with that, period. Mm -hmm. And so as a songwriter, the challenge of situation brings about a factor that I have to understand how the acoustics are working, what is going to, I hope, successfully communicate given those acoustic parameters. And that affects what I do really dramatically. Mm-hmm. So f- in terms of bridging polarities, to me, the marching band has always been a meeting place in American music where it came to represent to me this idea of the folk, of music for the people, by the people. And the fact that in American schools, you don't have to have an education, you don't have to have enough money to have private lessons. You can join a choir or you can join the marching band. There's a lot of people that have trumpets in their closets or flutes or piccolos in their closets. And so I became obsessed with this idea of the marching band as a meeting place for for everyone. Mountain on top, a fire below, the pressure grows pressure. And so my pop records have shifted more toward horns in certain ways, um, especially on the record, This Is My Hand. But then in my classical work, what I like so much about marching bands is that you can move through space and therefore we can have ritual and we can create procession, we can have collective meaning making, we can signify a story about our city, about something that's happening in the moment one of your recent collaborations that i'd love to talk with you about is the single titled try that you performed with guatemalan singer gabby moreno and the contos domos choir You mentioned to me that you wrote this song in response to the families who are being separated along the U.S. border, and that also the proceeds of this project go to support the nonprofit Kids in Need of Defense. So I'll be sure to include a link in the show notes of this episode so that our listeners can find out more about this. One thing that stands out to me about this piece is that you wrote the lyrics in English, 
but it also contains a spoken text in Spanish. What can you tell me about the Spanish text? The text came from a Guatemalan church mission statement. Try to transform the unjust structures of society, confront violence of every kind, seek peace and reconciliation. And I wanted to use this text because it is a challenge. It is a mission statement that you can live your whole life trying to fulfill. De transformar las estructuras injustas de la sociedad. Enfrentar a la violencia de toda índole y buscar la paz. It's deeply honorable. Mm-hmm. And I just think that to not to give dignity, but to recognize the dignity of people, to recognize inherent value, um, we must, we must. Yes. And it's one thing I think in a song to, you know, it's a very delicate balance as a songwriter to try and inspire empathy or inspire respect or to inspire compassion. And the way that you go about that as a songwriter is, it's ever a question. Uh But that was my hope and desire with this music. This brings me back to our conversation earlier about how music and caring for people often goes hand in hand for you. Mm -hmm. And this song in particular carries that empathy very well. I'm proud of that one. It is something as a descendant of settlers to deeply question, what is my role? And I'll just be completely uh, transparent that even for me to have found a church statement on the internet and to kind of pluck that out and decide to set it, there's a lot to be questioned about that. Mm-hmm. And so I think that as white folks are hopefully <laughs> asking <laughs> questions about what our relationship to others needs to be and where we need to amplify the voices of other people and how do we do that, you know, all of those things are also in play. And um, I did not feel that I needed to be the one to sing that song. That wasn't my role. My role was to allow Gabby, who's from Guatemala, to give her voice space to express her feeling through her sound, through her energy. So since this is a makerspace, I want to challenge us, me, to deep inquiry on how we need to be in relationship and where we need to to shift our status quo of operating. Mm -hmm. I guess let me not be afraid to say how we are operating in white supremacy because that's that's what I really mean to say. I love you though you're different than me. You don't look like me. You don't talk like me. You don't. What you're saying reminds me of some of your other lyrics from your song Supernova 
from your album A Million and One, and the, the lyrics come to mind. I love you though you're different than me. You don't look like me, you don't talk like me. I love you though you're foreign to me and unknown to me. And I don't want to impose meaning on those lyrics, but they, they did come to mind in this conversation. That song could certainly be interpreted that way. And it could also be the foreign part of yourself. Mm-hmm. It could also be a mother to a child. It could be a child to a mother. So part of ambiguity is that it allows the listener to project whatever they are experiencing into the music. And I'm so mindful of that. I don't want to tell you what to think. I don't want to try and convert you to my way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I want, and I think that's because I grew up in a very restrictive thought culture where because the ideology, it had to be this and thus, you know, way. And that was the truth, and there was no variance. Um, it's very important to me to create space for the listener to be wherever they are and to be having their own experience, and that it's not just about me and my personal story. Let love, let love take us, take us. When I read your words, it's like I'm witnessing a beautiful mosaic or it's almost like a collection of shard fragments of experience that tell me enough to paint pictures, but they leave enough out for me to have my own experience with the lyrics. And I and I love that about it. I love that ambiguity that you're talking about. I talk about Marcel Duchamp on the podcast a lot because he's one of my heroes. And I love how his philosophy about art was that the audience would complete the art by what they brought, by their perception of the art and their experience of the art. It's almost like a collaboration between the artist and the audience to to bring a full picture. To me, that's vital. Mm -hmm. Don't tell me how to think and don't tell me what something means because then the depth of what that toilet might mean is gone because you've just told me what it means. Yes. I don't want to be told what that means. I want you to leave space. This is really hitting at the core of of some of my own convictions as an artist. And I think that here lies the tension. A lot of people that follow the Makers and Mystics community would be people of faith in, in some regard or people interested in spiritual concerns. But the tension between faith communities and art communities can be that place of it. It seems like faith communities want or expect all the answers spelled out, whereas the art community wants the room for interpretation. And, and sometimes bridging that gap is a very interesting process creatively. <laughs> I don't bridge the gap. <laughs> That's a gap I will not bridge. You're not going to touch that one, right? <laughs> And here's why. Here's why. I was growing up in church my whole life, and 
As soon as I started making things to express or try and remotely figure out what my feelings were or what I was experiencing and putting that in song, I, woo, there was backlash. Mm. So for me, that was never an option because I simply couldn't, I couldn't deal with all of the projections that the church put on, on the art. The art... I would say that art has disrupted my thinking. Mm-hmm. It has shocked me. It has made me uncomfortable. It has forced upon me a kind of questioning, a line of questioning that has been completely disruptive. It's not comfortable. I was in a Matthew Barney film. That was the most extraordinary experience and the most disruptive (laughs) because I realized that he could use different forms that I was not allowed to use. Mm. And I had to ask other questions. And that discomfort is... uh, Faith spaces are so often about comfort. They are about assuredness. They are about finding, you know, to disagree or not even to disagree, but to have wonder and to hold space for wonder as you are all asking questions together in a, in a quote-unquote faith community, that's hard. And that's mm-hmm. because, I mean, I don't remember who said this first, but that's because Western Christian is about belief, not about practices. I think C.S. Lewis probably said that. Mm-hmm. But, but if, if you are so concerned with what people believe and that we are in alignment with what we believe rather than what practices do you have as you are pursuing questions, as you are pursuing your relationship with the divine? For me, that is a more open space. It, is a, it, is, it allows for more possibility than establishing a concrete set of beliefs and we align with that or we don't. For me, that that's that's hard. Well, I have one last question for you today, and this one deals more with your own personal practices as a working artist. You mentioned being a very disciplined person, and so I'd be curious to know if you have any daily habits, whether creative practices or spiritual practices that help to keep you centered or that help to keep you grounded, especially during times like these when so much of normal life has been upended for many artists? Let me just take a breath. (laughs) (laughs) Help me, Shara. Yeah. (laughs) Show me the way. (laughs) How do I stay sane is what I'm asking you. (laughs) I think for me, what I'm noticing is that an artist's life is bigger waves than, yes, I have weekly practices. Yes, I, I really limit the amount of television that I watch. I limit my time that I read things. I'm really trying to limit my time on um, social media so that I create 
room for a flight of the mind which is out of my normal loop. If you just randomize, you know, there's that thing where if you if you watch a person, we tend to go in the same loops and the same circles over and over again. And so it's only 7% of our, we have to make deliberate choices to move out of our habit. And so I think there's something to that about, yes, it's a, it's a balance because you definitely need to know what's happening in the world. And at the same time, you need to allow for the unconscious mind or that unnamed thing which is bubbling and gurgling inside of you. It needs space and it needs to come out. So protecting that is is a balance for sure. Beautiful. Shara, thank you so much for spending this time with me on Makers and Mystics. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Makers and Mystics and see our official website at makersandmystics.com to explore our library of over 200 episodes and artist interviews. This episode concludes season eight of the podcast. We'll be taking a few weeks off from the show as we prepare for the Breath in the Clay Creative Arts Experience, taking place March 17th through 21st online and in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. You can find out more about this event, as well as find links to My Brightest Diamond and the Makers and Mystics Creative Collective in the show notes of this episode. We'll see you again soon. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art. <laughs>